The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This evening, we will be taking a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the text is, in, is on page 573, if you want to follow along in the Bibles that are in the pew. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where the prophet Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor have been broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampin warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us, A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It was Christmas 1984, and a basketball hoop had topped my Christmas list for three years in a row. And after three years of enduring disappointment, I was not very optimistic. My parents had tried to convince me to just use my neighbor's hoop, and Mr. Dipple was only too happy to share, which was frustrating news, to say the least. This particular Christmas Eve, I was feeling even less optimistic, because first of all, it was raining, ruining any hopes of a white Christmas. Second, my dad and older brother he was older by seven years, had stolen me away from an exciting board game to help them dig an emergency drainage ditch on the side of the driveway. Uh, According to them, it needed to be a, a vertical shaft that went straight down three feet, about 36 inches, and somehow it would prevent the driveway from caving in when hit by excessive amounts of rainwater. 
I was naive about the sufficiency of the pre-existing swale in our front yard, so I was easily fooled. Ten-year-olds are gullible, and I was no exception. So with shovel in hand, I slogged through mud and rock and dug the narrowest, deepest drainage ditch ever to exist in Baltimore County. The next morning, there was no package near the Christmas tree big enough to conceal a real basketball hoop. And it was just as I feared. Mr. Dipple's kindness had ruined another Christmas. And after Mom and Dad had finished opening their gifts, I knew what had come. I was going to be disappointed and had to wait a whole year. Because when mom and dad open their gifts, you know Christmas is over. Before brunch, my mom had asked me to walk out to the mailbox and get the mail. Now I had no idea that mail wasn't delivered on Christmas Day. (laughs) So on my walk out to the mailbox, I was shocked to discover that rising out of that same hole, that drainage ditch, was a real black steel basketball pole. Just the pole, not the backboard or the hoop. (laughs) But I knew what this meant, and I ran back into the house screaming, where is it? Where's my basketball hoop? And it was hidden under the dining room table. I will never forget that Christmas. It was glorious. Now, if a basketball hoop can turn this 10-year-old's entire childhood from gloom to glory. Can you imagine what the God of the universe can do through the gift that he gives at Christmas? And tonight I want to unwrap that gift with you from Isaiah 9. And as we walk through this passage, we'll discover more about this gift that God gives. And there's two questions that are going to guide our time. One, how does the gift come? And two, why does it come the way it does? So first, how does the gift come? Well, as we'll notice in the passage, it comes in time, in space, and in the flesh. Look at verse 1 and 2, where we'll look at where this gift first shows up. In verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he's made glorious the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And the people there who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. Now, if you look at a map, Isaiah identifies a specific region in Israel... And beyond, as the passage says, beyond the Jordan, an area called Galilee of the Nations. And this happens to include the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which were two tribes of Israel that dwelt in that same region. And and if you didn't know, this region is in the northern part of the land of Israel, where you also find the Sea of Galilee. And so God's gift to us will first register on the radar of history in the area of Galilee, In such Galilean towns as Nazareth, Canaan, and fishing towns as Capernaum, and in places beyond the Jordan, places like the Decapolis and Tyre and Sidon, that's where God's gift will be on display in a historical place called Galilee. So first, 
It's in space. Second, it's in time. When will the gift arrive? Now, Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah chapter 9, sometime between 740 and 700 B.C. But notice his peculiar grammar. He uses three time-oriented phrases. Verse 1, there will be no gloom. That's a future tense. Then he says, in the former time he brought into contempt. That's past tense. But then thirdly, he says, but in the later time, he has made glorious. That's, that's a present perfect tense. Isaiah uses future, past, and present perfect tenses. They're all tied together in, in one sentence here. And while that makes for beautiful poetry, we may need to call our English teacher from high school to make sense of the grammar. Understanding the genre helps here. The genre is prophecy, and it refers to things to come. In other words, things revealed by God who stands outside of time and over space, but it's given to a man, Isaiah, who, like us, stands inside time and space. So to understand Isaiah's peculiar grammar, it's helpful to consider the classic movie Back to the Future. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Kids, ask your parents. It's a classic movie. You must see it. When Doc sees the future upon his return and he's talking with Marty McFly, but he's talking with him in very odd, strange ways, as if the future has already happened. And that's kind of what's going on here. Not that Isaiah has gone through a time machine, but God has enabled him to see what is yet to come. And that's why Isaiah writes, but in a later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. He's speaking in the present perfect tense as if something yet to happen in the later days has already happened. The gift has already shown up and somehow made this insignificant body of water, the Sea of Galilee, glorious and popular and known throughout history. Now, Isaiah doesn't give a specific date as to when the way of the sea will be made glorious from seeing this great light. We only know that Isaiah speaks of future things as if they've already happened. But we live in 2018 and we see this passage like we're Doc, who's seen the future and we're going back. See, we've seen Jesus walk on this sea. We've seen him still these stormy seas. But, But they heard these words spoken 700 years before this gift would arrive. See, Isaiah is speaking of things yet to happen as if they've already happened to clarify God's plan for giving this gift is an absolute certainty. He has fully decided. What does this mean about God's character? God's love language is giving gifts. Do you know anyone like that? Whose love language is giving gifts? God is like that. He is a thoughtful gift giver who who thoughtfully plans each step and increases the excitement by giving us hints about his gift all along the way. And he he wants us to carefully unwrap this gift in an unexpected way because it it comes in a small package. And kids, I'm going to give you a hint. I know you think the best gifts come in the big packages, but as you mature and get older, you realize... Sometimes the best gifts come in small packages. And that's what we have here. How does this apply? If you are living in a season in life where you think God is stingy, 
and he doesn't give good things. Don't worry. He is not hesitant nor noncommittal. He is a creative giver. And he plans his given, giving thoughtfully with each step, and he gives the most precious things, as we see here. So it comes in time, in just the right time, in space, on display in the area of Galilee, and lastly, it comes in the flesh. Look at verses 6 through 8. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is the same person talked about in verse 2, that he will be a light and will shine light on the people living in darkness. This child will sit on David's throne, that great Israelite king, and establish a kingdom that grows out of the Jewish nation and extends around the entire world. Notice this child is not just any child. He will be called in verse 7, mighty God. This child will be the God cub, the God man. He will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's not one of many. He's not just another prophet in a row or another teacher in a row or another miracle in a row. He is utterly unique. He is the one, the one and only God himself, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So in summary, the gift of God at Christmas is it's not a thing, but a person, not a what, but a who, and not a gift of just another prophet and another teacher, but he's the giver himself who wraps himself in the smallest package imaginable, a tiny baby. So why does God give this gift at Christmas? to us the way that he does. This is our second question. Why does it come as it does? Why does it come in time and space and in the flesh? There's three reasons we see in the passage. God's coming in space and time in the flesh. His real abiding presence in human history accomplishes three things. It calms our fears. It removes our gloom. And it consumes our cynicism. First, he calms our fears with his humility. Charles Spurgeon, that great English preacher, tells a story of asking one of his parishioners to take a sack of groceries and money to a local widower who needed it, but the widower refused to answer the door because he feared it was the bill collector. Not knowing what to do, the man left the money and the groceries at the door. And later, when Spurgeon ran into the widower, he learned that he had never gotten the gift. Apparently, it had been taken by someone else who felt that his need was just as great, and he wasn't afraid to be found out. See, throughout my teenage years, guilt and shame over my own moral debts kept me from answering the door. I avoided religious people, especially outspoken Christians. I stopped going to church as often as as I was allowed. I didn't want to be found out by God or by anyone associated with God. 
Philip Yancey says he learned a lot about Christmas when he started a saltwater aquarium. Managing a marine aquarium is nothing short of running a chemical laboratory. He needed to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. He pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfa drugs and enough enzymes, he says, to grow a rock. He filtered the water through glass filters and charcoal, and he writes, you would think that in view of all the energy expended on their behalf, that my fish would at least be grateful. (laughs) Not so. Every time my shadow loomed above the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in the food on a regular schedule, three times a day they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. And I could not convince them of my true concern. To my fish, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions, too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing and cleaning they viewed as destruction. What could change their perception? He realized that the only thing that would change it is if he could become small enough for them, if he could somehow incarnate himself and become like them. See, a a human becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a baby. And yet that is exactly what God did at Christmas. The Word became flesh because he knew our proclivity to run and hide. God arrived not as a king riding on a chariot of fire, but as a baby lying in a manger. God calms our fears by humbling himself and coming as a baby. Is there anything less threatening than an infant baby boy? How does this apply? Are you still running and hiding from God? Is the It's the normal thing to do when you know your debt, your sin, your shame. But what if God has come not to collect on your debt, but to offer you his gift, one that you desperately need? That is the meaning of Christmas. And as we look at that baby in a manger and see a God who has come close in just the way we needed him to come close, in the only way that would earn our trust and melt our fears away and allow us, enable us to embrace him. So God comes as he does humbly in flesh, in time and space, as a baby to calm our fears. But second, to remove our gloom And to replace it with glory. Look at it in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought contempt. But in the later time he's made glorious the way of the sea beyond the the Jordan. Do you see this? From From gloom to glory. Gloom to glory. First we must recognize the gloomy situation of which Isaiah speaks. At the time he writes the people living in the region of Naphtali and Zebulun had big problems. Foundationally, 
It was a spiritual problem because they had been ignoring God, ignoring his law, ignoring his ways, and this included creating worship problems of false worship and hypocrisy and idolatry, but it it led to other problems as well, social problems, where they were treating their own kind, people in their own community, disdainfully neglecting their poor, abandoning their weak, ignoring injustice committed by those with status and power in their community. And as a result, God brought them into contempt, verse 1. Because of their refusal to listen to God's word and his prophets, their refusal to repent and change their ways, their disgraceful living had caught up with them. And it was causing ruin. ruin. And the situation wasn't limited to individuals living in darkness, merely causing themselves pain like an addict does. But it was far worse than that. Isaiah speaks of a community of people, a nation that had lost its way, walking in darkness, where they were being wounded and wounding one another, abusing and abandoning one another. And as a result, the land suffers severe consequences also. Notice verse 1. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali had been brought into contempt. Even the land shares in the shame. It had become what we might be viewed as God-forsaken. God-forsaken land. Poverty. Loss of national sovereignty. Raiders who stripped the land of its wealth. And the people lived constantly under the threat of war. It was God forsaken, so it appeared. The land and the people living in darkness had become disgraceful, contemptible. They were people walking in darkness. Verse 2, they dwelt in a land of deep darkness. That's the gloomy situation And into this gloomy situation, God's gift of a divine son is given. And he will replace their gloom with glory. This is good news. And notice he does it while they still are a mess. A lot of people have a hard time coming to church because they think they have to get their act together before God wants them here. They think, well, until I get my act together, until I do such and such, I can't be there. But the hope of Christmas is even when you're a mess, even when you've blown it, even when you've found yourself in places you never imagined you'd work yourself into, even then when you're walking in deep darkness, he comes. How so? Well, the text gives us several images to flesh it out. The first image is he moves us from darkness to light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. It's not only that they see the light, but the light shines on them and changes them in their situation. So it's from light to darkness. The second image is from deprivation to abundance. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy, verse 3. They rejoice before you as with the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, this abundance begins with this son's work that starts in the land of Israel, but it will multiply such that his work will reach beyond traditional Israel. It will reach into the entire world. 
and joy will increase, like, like festival joy at harvest time, and like the joy of victory when you divide the spoils of war. It's, it's from deprivation to abundance. What other images do we have here of moving from gloom to glory? The third image is from oppression to freedom. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian is a reference to how God freed the Israelites from the Midianites, but not as you might expect, by, by, not by raising up a large army, but through a small band of 300 who attacked the enemy with torches of light and a word. And in a similar way, this gift of a son would move people from oppression to freedom in a very unexpected manner through the light of his word to demonstrate not the power and the wisdom of man, but the power and the wisdom of God. Gloom to glory. And the last image we have of gloom to glory is from war to peace. Verse 5, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Eventually, this baby would come to establish a kingdom of peace so vast, so stable, so permanent that there will be no need to maintain weapons of war. No soldier's uniforms would ever be necessary again. So in summary, he comes to replace gloom with glory in every conceivable way. What does this mean? Well, we now know when Jesus walked upon this earth, this is exactly what he did. He healed people in every possible way they needed healing, replacing their gloom with his glory. He surpassed all expectations. See, until Jesus showed up, no one really understood what they needed or what they wanted what they truly desired. They thought they knew, but it's only when they beheld him and saw him did they know. It's sort of like those who thought flip phones were all that they desired until they beheld their first iPhone. Remember those days? That's kind of how it was with Jesus. See, he clarifies that there's always space at the top of our Christmas list reserved for our deepest desires that we have trouble even verbalizing or recognizing. We may not recognize our longing for what it is, but Jesus is what we long for because we were made to be in an intimate, covenantal relationship with God, but we've lost that due to our sin. And Jesus came so that we could have it back. And what we want is we want God back. We may think we long for pleasure, but what we really long for is the very one who creatively invented every pleasure you'll ever experience. We may think we want romance and significance, but what we really want is to be loved and valued by the only pair of eyes in the universe that matter, as Tim Keller once said. We may think we want security, the security that comes from wealth and status and accomplishment, but what we really want is a security that cannot evaporate with an economic downturn or one of our failures at work or at home. See, whether we realize it or not, our heart longs for more than the best gifts found in this creation. We long for the best giver, the Lord of creation himself. And the thing at the top of our Christmas list is none other than God himself, and he is the hope of Christmas, and you can have him. We all can. Do you want counsel and wisdom? He's the wonderful counselor. Do you want peace? 
He's the prince of it, the peacemaker who enters in and resolves conflict, ends strife, melts hatred with his love, creates thankfulness and restores hope. Do you want someone you can trust with the world's problems? Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders. No one has made a more positive impact in history than this man, Jesus Christ, whom we date time after. It's 2018. Make no mistake that we date time after this man, Jesus Christ, because he is carrying the government on his shoulder and his kingdom is advancing and not even the gates of hell will stand against it. It is still growing, still replacing gloom with glory. Each and every day, this word of truth impacts the hearts of broken, hopeless, helpless sinners that need it. So he comes in time and space and the flesh to calm our fears with his humility, to replace our gloom with glory, but last, to consume our cynicism in hope. The hope of his redemptive presence. Similar to my basketball hoop on that magical Christmas morning in 1984, God's Christmas gift to us sprouts up in an unexpected place. You'd think a royal son who would sit on David's throne would be born in a palace and laid in a golden cradle, but he comes not from a womb of a recognized queen, but an unmarried teenage girl. He arrives literally sprouting up out of the mud, the muddy, dirty place, a stable filled with smelly animals and their waste. And his feeding, his, his cradle is a feeding trough for livestock. And yet this baby would fulfill every prophecy including this one in Isaiah, he would become the Prince of Peace and he would eventually grow up and establish a peace that endures forever. But again, he would do so in the most unexpected place, on a cross, an ugly, muddy, horrid hellhole, a despised place stained with betrayal, abandonment, and piercing pain, covered in his blood, sweat, and tears, And no one standing at the foot of that cross imagined that God's greatest gift would sprout out of such a horrid hole as Calvary. And no one imagined that in the light of history, not only a Roman cross, but a shepherd's stable would become a beautiful place of glory and hope as we realize God is with us. For there, God surprises us. He breaks through our cynicism because he shows up where we really need him, in the messy, dirty, bad situations. So no matter how broken or how disappointing or how messy or how heartbreaking your situation is, you can know that the God of the universe, the God of our Bible, he is present and he is at work to turn our gloom into glory. And what might this God do with your muddy, messy, dirty, shameful, dream-broken situation? God is knocking at the door. Don't refuse to open up to him. In Jesus, God comes not to collect on your debt, but to offer his gifts and to pay your debt. And he's come for you to consume your cynicism, your cynicism with hope because he is present and he's acting powerfully in your most painful places. Let us pray.
God, this gift of Christmas that you give us in Jesus leaves us speechless. I pray that tonight none of us would miss it. None of us would miss it among all the glitz and shiny things exchanged between people this Christmas. It comes as the smallest of packages, but it contains the glory of the Lord of the universe. God, thank you for this gift of yourself in the person of Jesus who came in just the right time, who came in a space called Galilee, who came as a baby in the flesh to sneak past our defenses and calm our fears, who came as a powerful king to replace our gloom with his glory, who came as a man, sympathetic to our struggle and pain, born in a messy and poor place, who lived among messy and dirty people, died a messy and ugly death in order to consume our cynicism and replace it with his redemptive presence and hope. Oh God, may we know his peace and his presence and be utterly changed by his glory this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.